and hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And again, you can always catch what I'm writing hour for hour, day by day, on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. It's really the only site you need to know about. Uh, you, you know, if you're not on Twitter, by the way, you don't have to post anything. <laughs> but if you want to read somebody's Twitter feed, you don't have to be a participant. You can just be a watcher. But the Twitter feed is really the best place to follow me uh, and to also find the full articles or books or other things that I reference in any given edition of Novak Now. So instead of giving you a ton of different website addresses to remember, a ton of different numbers, stuff like that, just remember the Twitter feed is at JakeJakeNY. That's where I promote the things that are on this program in fuller form. I'll send a link and things like that that include that. And it's also where you'll find some of the other commentary that I don't have time to put into a half-hour podcast radio show every week. Um, and you'll find that stuff there. So that's really the best place to, to follow what I'm doing and to keep track of what's going on and to check up on what I'm talking about. If, you don't, if you're not so sure what I have to say is, is true or what you like, uh, you can always find some of the stuff that I'm referencing there. Um, I want to make this edition of Novak now another one of my solution programs. Uh, there have been a couple of these that I've done in the past here on this program where I've really tried to focus on ideas to fix problems that are in and maybe not always in the middle of the news. Um, and it's just not enough of that. I mean, if you turn on the cable news networks or even the talk radio programs, you're going to hear a lot of descriptions about what is going on. And a lot of times it's just opinion-based stuff, and that's okay. People, it's, it's free speech, First Amendment right to do that. Um, you'll hear a lot of harping on problems. And you won't really hear a lot of ideas about how to fix it. Now, the funny thing about that is if somebody comes up with an idea or a solution specifically, which is rare. I mean, how, again, I can't remember the last time I turned on a program on the cable news networks or, or listened on the radio where somebody said, this is a specific solution that will will work. More than, for example, I mean, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, if you have rioters, you need to send in the police. Or if you have massive rioting in the, in, in the thousands, you need to send in the military. I, I recognize that that is sort of a solution. But it's a momentary solution for a momentary problem. I'm talking about longer-term solutions. The funny thing about it is that, of course, that will bring out all the critics. All the people who never have a solution of their own will be quick to jump on that person. And that's human nature. That's something that happens even off the air, that happens in your life, probably in your house sometimes, that happens sometimes, certainly in a, in a school setting. You hear, hear about that all the time. But for the folks who do spend their lives and do look at problems and say, okay, this is a problem I've identified or other, someone, maybe someone else has identified it. I want to devote my time and efforts to fixing it. And those are the people that you want to seek out in life. And I think, for example, as a profession, engineers are those kinds of people, right? I mean, people who are engineers, whether it's a literal engineer, like the folks who build bridges and dams and infrastructure projects or software engineers or system engineers, those kinds of people, they seek solutions. And they tend to look at politics, and they tend to look at social hurdles that we face in very different ways than, let's say, artists or writers. Because, you know, a writer or an artist can be successful if they do a good job of just describing the problem. 
In other words, let's take racism, which of course is in the center of our news now for so many days in a row. If you're a good writer, you can write a story that's either fiction or true about a racial injustice that happened or, again, maybe didn't happen, but it's a fictionalized story based on the truth. And you can make a lot of money and you can, do, and you can prove that you're a great writer. Same thing if you're do, writing a song about it or making a play, whatever, anything like that. From an artistic point of view, you don't need to solve anything. And a lot of people in the journalism business are basically coming from an artist artist point of view. Their job is to describe a situation, they think, describe a situation, play it up for as much drama as possible so that people watch or people click on the, on the link or people buy the newspaper, that whole thing. And the solution part, well, you know, I'm not saying they don't have something in their nature which might want to look at a solution. But that's very secondary, right? Do, do the journalists who uh, depict a situation going on need to do anything other than describe something that's going on? Do they really need to have a solid solution or invite somebody on their program or into their website article or something like that? Do they really have to invite somebody in there who proposes a solution? And the answer is no. It's too bad. I think I would much rather want to do that. I mean, I turn on a television now, watch the news, or see what's going on on my own Twitter feed or other people's feeds. And I see a lot of problems described. I see a lot of mayhem and outrage. But I would love to see people promoting individual ideas. And if I disagree with them, I disagree with them. But you got to give credit to the, to the men and women or the children, I don't care, who the, the people who put out solutions, people who really want to focus on that. And I feel so very often in my work, I feel forced so very often to describe what I think is the reality. There is so much misinformation, disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it, that's out there that I find about 60% of what I write is trying to let people know, hey, that's really not what's really going on, or be prepared because something is about to happen, it's on the schedule, news-wise, be prepared for this bad job that a lot of people are going to do, here's what you need to really focus on, and I talked about that several times, for example, with COVID-19, and that's happening now, for example. I told you seven weeks ago that when Georgia and some of these other states reopened, you need to really watch out for bad journalism where they talk about the increased number of cases without talking about whether the rates increased and not talking about death rates. And that's exactly what's happened. So there's not enough solution stuff going on, because, even from my own work. I would like to really devote 70% of my work to proposing solutions, even if I'm wrong. You know, listen, if it turns out my solution is bad, someone comes up with a better one, great. At least I got the conversation started. But I feel like I have to spend so much time trying to describe what's really going on there. But despite that, I am able from time to time to throw out solutions to problems that are out there. And most of the time, those things creep into my actual columns, which you can find. Again, the Twitter feed will always announce where you, when a new column comes out. But Sometimes it's just a tweet that I'll do. I won't even have time to write a full article about it, but I'll propose a solution. So I want to talk about solutions more than, I, than I'm able to, and that's frustrating. And again, my solutions, folks, are, may not be the ones that actually work. But the hope in my heart is, one, well, 
obviously, I hope that my solution would one day somebody be, be adopted by somebody and it actually works. That would be a great feeling of pride, of nachos for me. But hey, I would also feel just as proud, or at least almost as proud, is if someone said, hey, you know what? That Jake Novak had that idea to f- fix that problem. He was wrong, but he got us thinking about a better solution. And if that would be all that I ever do in, in my career, I'd be really happy with that. At least I got people thinking on a productive, solution-based focus. Could I be a, an engineer of sorts, uh, a, 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 a policy engineer, someone who looks at what's wrong in a city or a town or a country or a world and says, here's what we should do? And I do that a lot in my writing, which is sadly rare, <laughs> compared to my colleagues, but I don't do it enough. So I wanted to devote this program to some solutions that we're talking about here. And some of them will be small-scale solutions and some of them will be large-scale. Now, we've been dealing for the last couple of weeks with what people would say is the number one focus problem that everyone is focusing on right now, and that is the situation with the black community or black Americans and, and their relationship to the police. Exacerbated reignited by the killing of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin, the police officer in Minneapolis. He is now suspended. I I guess you can't officially fire him. He's been charged with first-degree murder uh, because we all saw, or many of us saw the video of him kneeling on the man's neck for nine minutes, which which I think a lot of us, I mean, I really don't know anybody who thinks that that was justified. But there are so many other details in this case that have not yet come out yet. We, it, it appears that, that, that Chauvin and Floyd knew each other and had a relationship of some kind uh, con- connected to the job that Chauvin had, uh, his moonlighting job. You know, a lot of cops have security jobs in their, t- in their time off, and apparently they had a, a run-in in that situation. So I'm not saying, it doesn't seem like the way that he died was justified no matter what was going on in that situation, but it could help us explain some some reasoning for why there was such a brutal, a brutal event. So, look, I think there are a couple of things that I want everyone to understand. Last week, I talked about how Jews have absolutely have the right and probably should march and protest and speak out about police brutality if they, if, if they so choose. But we as Jews, no matter how religious you are, no matter how Zionist you are, cannot by any, in any way, shape, or form ally ourselves with the official Black Lives Matter movement. It is an anti-Semitic, anti-Israel movement. The leadership is. And we certainly agree that Black Lives Matter, there's nothing wrong with the actual slogan, but the organization, that official trademark group organization, I mean, the, the official organization, Black Lives Matter, is not something that any Jew should be allied with. No matter how much pressure you might feel to march alongside them. There's nothing wrong with having a separate march another time if you feel like marching. There's nothing wrong with putting a sign out on your lawn as long as it is not an official Black Lives Matter logo sign. Because again, you, there's just no justification for a Jew to be part of that group in any way, shape, or form. There just isn't. Black Lives Matter's issues with the Jewish people and with Israel have been a long time, have been a long time documented. And again, I don't care how non-religious you think you are or non-Zionist you think you are, you don't need to know that much Jewish history to know that if you get involved with an organization that denounces Jews or denounces Israel or finds some reason to say that Jews are the only group that doesn't have the right of self-determination, 
then you can't stay with that group because eventually it will turn on you. Last week I talked about how that happened in the Communist Party in, in, in the Soviet Union very early on, really early on. So eventually it will not work out for you no matter how much you think it won't happen to you. And I know that there are some rabbis out there who are trying to march along with the Black Lives Matter official movement. I think that's incredibly foolish and should not be done. But what can we say about this situation in the United States? Well, again, I, I talk, I've talked about this on a number of different editions of Novak Now in the past, so I will only briefly mention it now. But I want to talk about, again, coming from an engineering standpoint. Imagine this problem of either racism in the United States or police brutality going on in the United States against anyone, black, white, or anybody. Um, And think of the situation of different disparities in the way things are in certain neighborhoods. There's some neighborhoods that have security and safety and don't have as much crime and those who don't. Let's look at this not as as something where we need to change minds, because if you're an engineer, changing someone's mind is not something that you do. I mean, it's just not a, it's not a project. Change everybody's mind. No, you need, if you're an engineer, you're building a bridge that I can get from one side of this river to another. Or you're, building a, or you're coding a great computer program so I can do something, I can, I can get my data and, and I get a website to work in a certain way. And my solution, <laughs> among many, but my, my, my most cherished solution for fixing the issues within are different communities. And it's not just African-Americans. It's not just blacks. It's all all the poor neighborhoods in America. And that includes, for example, very white neighborhoods in Appalachia. Uh, Latino neighborhoods that are also sometimes much less uh, wealthy and much less safe than white neighborhoods, depending on on which ones we're talking about. Some are are, are really great. Same goes for some African-American neighborhoods, too. But the fact is, what's my number one solution for that? Looking at it as an engineer... And again, we can talk about whether or not we've done enough with certain programs and with welfare, or with affirmative action or things like that to try to help African-Americans and other minorities get a leg up and try to get into a college a little bit easier, maybe, or get a job a little bit easier. We can talk about all that, but that's not the root problem. The root problem is, I don't don't care how right-wing or left-wing you are, nobody can in their right mind deny that there is an educational opportunity gap in this country. And again, there are a lot of people who want us to forget about that, on both the right and the left, by the way. You might think that it's only right-wingers who want to say, oh, no, there's no such thing as school problems, everybody. It's all about parenting. I mean, I'll give you two arguments that I've heard in the last week, and I've heard them for years, but especially in the last week, I've heard them repeated. From the right, right right-wingers like to say, well, Jake, I I, I know know you want to improve the school and the educational disparities, but Jake, you're you're barking up the wrong tree. This is about fathers leaving African-American families and so many black families without fathers. If parents aren't living together in a stable home, the chance of the kid doing well in school are lower. That's really the problem, and there's other problems like that. It's got nothing to do with whether the school is good or bad. If the school is good, but the kid is living in an unstable home, then it doesn't matter. So that's the argument I'm hearing from the right wing. From the left wingers out there, I'm hearing, oh no, we've solved the educational disparity problem. And they point to the statistic 
uh, Jake, uh, and again, I've heard this a lot in the last week. I've heard it for years, but I've heard it more in the last week from the left. They'll say, Jake, you know that the most educated ethnic group in this country is black women? Did you know that, Jake? So if black women who economically are still at the bottom of the ladder are getting so much better education than the rest of the population, then it can't be education. Jake, it's got to be the hatred of, the, uh, of those racists who are not hiring them and not giving them an, or, or a racist at the bank who aren't loaning them the money and all that kind of stuff. Well, I want to tell you that what's wrong with these two arguments that I've just described to you from both the right and the left. Let me talk about the argument from the right and when they focus on families and things like that. Now, granted, that is a problem. For those of you who think it's always been that way, that African-American families have been really, really suffering from men leaving, men not marrying the, the, the mothers of their children or marrying them and then leaving, and then there's a big single mother prob- you know, explosion in the black community. That's been a problem for about 60, 60 years, for sure. But before the welfare state really got in, installed in this country, before a lot of other programs got put in, where we made sure that women, even if they didn't have a father, were getting some kind of money from the government directly, if it didn't have a, weren't with the father, it did get worse. So yes, that has been a big problem. And Daniel Moynihan, before he became Senator Daniel Moynihan from New York, and the, my older listeners will remember him well, he was a moderate Democrat. He was an old school kind of liberal, but moderate, even in his time. And he wrote a very famous study for the Nixon administration, even though he was a Democrat, about how the fatherhood issue, the, the breakdown of the family, aided by welfare, unfortunately, really was hurting the African-American community. So I'm not saying that isn't a problem. But folks, and I want you to listen to this very, very well. I started in, in, in the news business in New York after I had worked in some other states. Now, I went to high school here, and I went to college here, and then I left for many years, got involved in the news business, came back to the news business and worked in a ne- at a network called New York One. Many of you may watch it now. And when I tell you that every year, one of the most incredible stories we would cover on New York One was the, was the annual moment when a bunch of black mothers would line up around the corner, wait all night, like it was a concert or something, to get their kids enrolled in a charter school or some of the better public schools. And we covered that story every year. And I got to tell you, most of the parents that were there were just the single mom parents. Now, I'm not saying that the single mom households aren't a problem. They are. And some of those moms are great. I'm not saying the moms aren't doing a good job. It's just, it's hard to grow up that way without two parents. To do it on purpose is really rough. But I got to tell you, there were enough women, just women alone there, who wanted their kids to have a good education and proved it by staying all, not out, out all night in the cold to get their kids into the better school. So that proved to me that... <laughs> Sure, that's a problem with the breakdown of the family, absolutely. But there's clearly not enough educational opportunity if all the women, if so many of the women, so many of the moms are, are staying up all night to wait around the corner outside to get their kids into the school. So you understand that that's just, that's a point of opportun- not enough opportunities there. They shouldn't have to do that. They should be able to automatically get their kid into a better school. Now, the argument on the left that I, that I described is based on a faulty statistic. There are a lot of people out there who will tell you this, this, this not true piece of data. They'll tell, you, they'll tell you it's true, but it's not true. They'll say, like I said before, oh, black women are the most educated people in America. They're more likely to have higher degrees 
and more degrees. So the fact that they're still down at the bottom of the barrel economically has got to be because of the way people think about black women and their racism. Well, the statistic's not true. It is based on a misreading of a study that showed that black women are more likely to be better educated than black men at a ratio higher than within any subset of any other ethnic group. In other words, black women are more likely to have more degrees than black men than white women are more likely to have more degrees than white men, or Asian women as opposed to Asian men. As a whole, black women are still very behind educationally compared to white women and Asian women. So it is a faulty statistic. It is not true. Don't let anyone tell you that. My opinion, very strongly, is that we have to do something about improving the educational opportunities. And again, you can see the articles I've written about it. I'm not going to go into every little bit of the detail about, about my specific solution there, but, but just to summarize my solution is I want America's top universities and I want America's top corporations to stop sending me emails and Facebook posts about how they care about racism and do something about it and set up schools, private schools with free tuition in all the poorest neighborhoods in America. Shouldn't be race-based. It should be neighborhood-based, economically-based. Obviously, that will turn out ending up being many more black communities than white communities, but fine. That's the way I want them to solve that problem. Again, the details for that solution you can find on my Twitter feed and all the articles that I put out there. Another solution I have now, sadly, is we're looking at a lot of communities that have been destroyed by this double whammy of the COVID-19 lockdowns that have put a lot of downtowns that were already struggling in more dire straits, a lot of businesses that have, been, that have failed, and, and, then, and the second part of the double whammy, which is all this r- r- rioting and looting in some of the already minority communities. For example, there was one neighborhood in Washington, D.C., which is very predominantly black, where the only supermarket got looted and burned down. Now they don't have a supermarket. So I have a lot of different solutions like that. One of them is actually being done. The Trump administration has this great Opportunity Zone program where massive tax breaks and other incentives are in place to set up businesses in these neighborhoods. I think that's great, and we should do more of that. And I also have another solution that I learned early on in my life, but I've seen it happen again and again, which is use artists, the painters, the sculptors, the musicians, the the playwrights. Use them as, I like to call them economic colonists and economic disaster area first responders. Think of so many of the neighborhoods in New York City that have been revitalized over the last 40, 50 years. Think about Williamsburg. Think about even Greenwich Village. I mean, that's going further back. But there are so many neighborhoods where the artists move in first or come in there first, sometimes to live rent-free in abandoned buildings or whatever the heck they're doing, and they create a better community, a more attractive community for young urban professionals who might want to go and, and take advantage of their, that art and become customers there. And they revitalize the neighborhood. Williamsburg is a great example of that, one of the best out there. There are many others. One of the other neighborhoods, it's not a New York neighborhood that is really a great example of that, is that Capitol Hill neighborhood in Seattle. Now, that neighborhood may ring a bell in your mind right now because that's the neighborhood where, sadly, this autonomous group of armed warlords has taken over. They're calling themselves the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, CHAZ. I mean, it's ridiculous, and it would be funny if it, if, if it, if it weren't sad. Because they've looted and they destroyed a lot of businesses in that neighborhood. They're abusing people. It's just a bad situation there in Seattle right now. 
And it's so sad because last year, more than a year ago, I interviewed somebody who was then working in New York who was really very much responsible for the revitalization of the Capitol Hill neighborhood back in the early 1990s. And you can read about that, again, on my Twitter feed, you can find it. Uh, a young man who, gra- who was, you know, just graduated Harvard or one of the better schools there, and he, gradu- and he moved out to Seattle. He was originally from New Jersey, moved out to Seattle. And he, yes, he was a young Jewish guy. Moved out to Seattle to pursue a dream of producing uh, plays or at least being kind of like a, a theater owner. And was managing a bar slash theater, realized that the artist community in Capitol Hill had a lot of potential. He organized them, got them together, went to City Hall, told, told the, the leaders of the city of Seattle what they wanted. And lo and behold, they created this fantastic neighborhood of Capitol Hill in Seattle, which was blo- booming and booming right up until just now, where this group has taken it over and is ruining it. Well, the, the way to fix it is to go back to the, the drawing board. When they get these armed nut jobs out of there, Bring the artists back in. Give them rent-free, tax-free, whatever you have to do to make it work. And by the way, this is something that works in Israel too. The revitalization of the city of Tzvat has been very much helped by the artist colonies that have been set up there. The pushing out of the valuable real estate in the Tel Aviv-Yafo area, Yafo area, Tel Aviv-Jaffa area, has been because the Israeli government opened up parts of Jaffa that were dormant economically, to artist groups and artist colonies, and they have made the, the, the Tel Aviv metropolis, the Tel Aviv Jaffa metropolis, even more valuable by expanding it further and further in the direction of Jaffa. So, this is something that actually works, the details of which other people are much more uh, adept at and, and are experts in than I am. But that works too. Use the artists, bring them back. That's the kind of thing that, that works. And I want to be able to see more of that. When it comes to the COVID-19 thing, no, this is not going to be my, for those of you who are praying for a vaccine or a cure, unfortunately, you're barking up the wrong tree with me. I am not an epidemiologist. I am not a doctor. But I do believe that there's a better way to handle a key part of this lockdown, which again, continues to be the schools being locked down. If you've been listening to me here, on the Novak Now program here on the Nachum Siegel Network, you know that I've been saying for a long time that the lockdowns will not be truly over and our economy cannot truly recover until the schools are reopened at all levels. There are too many single parents or even two-parent homes that cannot economically thrive if their kids are not in school, if the daycare centers aren't open or, or the schools aren't open. And there's too much of our economy which is connected to the operation of schools for it to really flourish. I mean, you're talking about, I think, a good third of the workforce that will not be able to fully participate unless the schools are reopened. My solution there is, based on science, even though I am not officially a scientist or a doctor, is reopen those schools now. And for the teachers who are at risk, what do we do with them? We need a solution here because there are teachers and older people who work in the schools who are much more at risk than the children. I understand that. I think we make them the ones who continue to work on the online educational aspects, even if we return school to its regular in-class sessions all over the country. I think we've learned that there is some need for online classrooms for the kids who are sick and out for a day or a week or something like that. This should be a place that they can go to get 
caught up with the class and things like that. So the teachers who can't be in the schools because that danger is to them, let them always record online lessons. Give them something to do so that they're not just earning a paycheck by sitting at home or losing their job. Folks, I have many more solutions. Again, if you follow me on my Twitter feed, I'm always trying to throw them out. Are they perfect? Are they always the right solution? I don't know. I hope they are. But even if they're not, let's think solutions. As a people in this country, solutions. Let's be engineers in our own way. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week. <laughs>